welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Walter Miller, P.D. James, and Preserving the Really Human Things by Matt Carpenter. This is uh, the second lecture on P.D. James, Walter Miller, and Preserving the Really Human Things. The idea of apocalypse as revealing is commonly seen in Scripture. In Ezekiel 8, the prophet has a vision of the type of things that were going on in the temple, although they were done in secret. He says, quote, And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall, and when I digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, and abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed about <clears throat> upon the wall round about. That's the end of that, that particular passage. So, in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel is given a vision of what is going on among the, the political leaders of Judah. They are worshiping false gods, particularly the goddess Asherah. The prophet did not have to wonder why Judah was sent into exile when they were engaging in this false worship even in the temple itself. And this is not pagans we're talking about. This is God's people. His covenant people are worshiping these false gods. So this was revealed, or it was unveiled, to Ezekiel. And in his writing, he is then unveiling it to everyone else. That's what the best dystopias do. They reveal what is actually happening. They project what the they project the disease even in its early stages. They project what it will look like in the future. All the while, though they reveal some degree of hope. And again, this is referring to the hopeful dystopias. That's what we see in the best biblical dystopian or apocalyptic writers, men like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Daniel. It's also what we see in the Revelation of St. John, when the apostle sees visions of what will come and presents among these visions the hope of God's people. This same hope is what we call eschatology, or last things. Most of the time when we think of eschatology, we think of, well, you're going to have how many years of tribulation? And is this 1,000 years literal? Is Jesus going to come back and rule on earth? But actually, for our fathers in the faith, a lot of them did not get into systems of eschatology. It was simply, in time, the reign of Christ will manifest itself in a greater way than we can imagine and we wait for and hope for that time. They did not have detailed systems in the writings of the church a thousand years ago. 
They're simply looking for and anticipating the reign of Christ being fully manifest. And they didn't feel the need to elaborate beyond that. Well, when you read the book of Revelation, you see all kinds of terrible things. The judgments, the bowls that that come, the plagues that come. Yet in all of that, you see still at at the end, hope. The year 2021 is one where we see a world of violence. Political radicals on the left and right looting, burning, and protesting. Pornography pouring out of the television and computers. A sinking fertility rate. People giving up power to the government in exchange for security, health, and entertainment. There's nothing unique about this observation, except that British writer P.D. James wrote about it in 1992 in her novel, The Children of Men. It is a novel of death, both physical and spiritual death. Again, set in the year 2021, she portrays a a British society certainly worse than the one we see now, yet strikingly accurate in its projection. James was a detective novelist, writing her first novel in 1962 at the age of 42. She worked for British civil, this British civil service. Her husband was very sick at the time, and he actually died two years later in 1964. So she continued her job, but then wrote mystery novels on her own time and continued up until she died in 2014 at the age of 94. Her novels were were highly acclaimed for their realism, combining the authors, authors like Charles Dickens with Arthur Conan Doyle. Dickens is known for his realistic depictions of British society during the Industrial Victorian Age. So James is seen as one who is realistic in her depiction of British society in the 1960s and later the 70s and 80s. She she was a faithful Anglican who loved the Book of Common Prayer, and you can see and hear that love in her primary detective novel, excuse me, her primary detective character, Adam Daglish, who is in in those novels a former, uh, well, his father was an Anglican priest. He himself, though agnostic, is a lover of all things related to the Church of England, particularly the Book of Common Prayer. The title, The Children of Men, and you can see one version of that here. The title, The Children of Men, is taken from the authorized version of Psalm 90 in Scripture, which begins, Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever Thou hast formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. And then I'm just seeing now in my notes that I I failed to actually bring in the passage that the next verse which he says, Thou bringest man to destruction, thou sayest unto him, Return, ye children of men. So in this passage, it is a passage read, 
Simeon and I need you to is a passage read at every British funeral. And uh, that is a funeral in the church of England. And it reminds people that even though God is, that God is sovereign in all things, yet He also has declared the time of our death. When He says, return ye children of men, that is the time when He is, he is calling men back from this life to be with him. The main character in the novel is an Oxford Don named Theodore Farnan, or Theo. The novel opens in January 2021 with the story that the last human being born on earth in the year 1995 was killed in a barroom brawl. A mysterious disease has left all men infertile. The blessings of procreation are long gone. The last generation, born known as Omegas, are spoiled and wreak havoc on society. They are formed in gangs and everyone is so afraid of killing them or harming them that they are allowed to run roughshod, rampant, with no direction at all. As Theo says on page 11, if from infancy you treat children as gods, they are liable in adulthood to act as devils. Excuse me. Theo's cousin, Zan Farnan, was elected as the warden of Britain in 2006. Zan abolished democratic elections, and the people did not care. They just want security and entertainment. Theo is an agnostic humanist, believing people must be decent to others, but has no clear reason why. He attends some Church of England services, but only for the beauty, not because he embraces the faith. The government is known as the Council of England. They make the rules, which are enforced by the Grenadiers, which is formerly known, formerly the British Armed Forces. As I said earlier, death is a brooding presence throughout the book. People have given up hope since the disease came and there have been no children born since 95. There is no interest in sex for its procreational purpose to the point that the government sponsors a pornography channel on television in hopes of stirring interest, all to no avail. I would add that not long after I started preparing this, I read that Japan has done the exact same thing. There is a government-sponsored pornography channel in Japan because their birth rates are so low, they're trying to encourage couples to have kids. And that's the best that they can do in their godless society. Euthanasia is enforced on all, for all adults once they hit 60 years old in a mass drowning ceremony. The church in 2021 is largely a sham. It ignores the Bible, sin, and judgment, and settles for a liturgical gloss, aesthetic sentimentality with no power. One of the subdued plot lines is the growth of Theo Farnan from agnostic to potential convert. At the beginning of the story, he is a weaker version of Humphrey Bogart's Rick Blaine in Casablanca. Have y'all seen Casablanca before? 
you know, Rick Blaine, which is who's Humphrey Bogart, he begins and and when he's challenged because World War II and they're being <clears throat> Casablanca is officially neutral, but it's essentially Nazi controlled, and they're they're, be, they're challenged at times, and he says, "I don't stick my neck out for nobody." Okay, one of the famous lines. I won't go into the other famous lines, but I'm sure you can recall them, though, of all the gin joints in town, blah, 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 blah. So, Theo is comfortable in his despair and would prefer to keep it that way. Yet he is placed in, the difficult, in difficult positions that he cannot ignore and must make choices that will draw him out of his apathy and towards the good, or if he were to choose, away from the good, and towards evil. As you read through the book, Theo draws more and more on passages from Scripture, many of which he learned as a child from the Book of Common Prayer. In the end, he is willing to sacrifice himself beyond anything we thought possible at the beginning. And he finds himself acting in a acting in the role, not directly as one, but in the role of a priest on more than one occasion. We see him administering the Book of Common Prayer uh, final prayers on one who is sick and just about to die. That's just one example. Now at the end, we still don't know exactly what he will do. He never openly embraces Christianity. But the work that he does is, grad, he, you see, this gradual turning, you're led to think that hopefully he will continue this path and he will embrace faith and live his faith. In, he could still turn, as I said, but apathy is no longer a possibility. In the midst of tumult and chaos, grace has found him. Walter Miller knows something or two or something about grace. An American fighter pilot in World War II, he took part in the bombing of Monte Cassino in Italy. It's actually the Battle of Monte Cassino. And Monte Cassino is the original monastery founded by St. Benedict of Nursia. When Miller discovered the cultural devastation he caused, his guilt was severe. He converted from atheism to Roman Catholicism and soon wrote a novel entitled A Canticle for Leibowitz. A Canticle for Leibowitz is actually three stories in one. They all take place in a future history of the United States and of the world. Prior to the events in the first story, there was a nuclear war that devastated the world. Isaac Leibowitz was a Jew, is a Jewish scientist who, in, in the story, converted to Christianity and after he could not find his wife after this nuclear war, he joined a Cistercian monastery. He took it upon himself then to search for cultural artifacts, especially books, and preserve them as best he could. At the beginning of the first story, each of the stories has a Latin title. So the very first story is Fiat Homo, which is translated, Let There Be Man. 
In this story, Brother Francis Gerard, a dull novice hoping to become a monk, is wandering in the Utah desert as part of his preparation for ordination. He comes across items left by Leibowitz, who is currently being considered for sainthood at the Vatican. Gerard, who is slow-witted and often ridiculed, is transparent in his childlike faith and desire to obey. When he brings, and I'm delving a little bit away from the notes, but when, when Gerard brings some of the artifacts that he finds of Leibowitz to the monastery and says, see, we, we now have greater reason to hope then for his, uh, you know, this present more, presents more evidence that, that he could be uh, canonized as a saint, there's suspicion, uh, significant suspicion, because so many things are being found all at once. But in time, Leibowitz is canonized as a saint, and Gerard is sent to the Vatican to present the relics that he discovered of Leibowitz. Now, on his way, in addition to what he has found, Gerard, in his love for serving, has actually written and beautifully transcribed some of what he found. Do you know how some of the early Bibles will actually, that were hand copied, that they're elaborately written, they have decoration on the pages and things like that. So Gerard does that for some of the relics. Now we laugh at the relics, and, and Walter Miller does this on purpose. Because some of the relics that he finds, he found them in, in a bomb shelter. Some of them are a shopping list that Leibowitz had collected. And, and there are other things like that. So this is not all a dull novel. In fact, I would say that there's probably more humor in spots in Canticle for Leibowitz than m most of the other novels that, that we've talked about thus far. But anyway, so Gerard is going to take these and he's going to present the relics themselves and he will also present his transcriptions to the Pope. On his way there, though, he is robbed by a group known as the Pope's children. They are deformed mutants who have been affected because of the nuclear blast that had taken place. And so, so they're also cannibals. So they, they hold him up and they steal from him his transcriptions, the things that he worked on for so long but he's able to hide the relics themselves so that they actually cannot get to those. The Pope gives him some gold with which to purchase back the items which were stolen, but on the, while Francis Gerard is bringing them back, he is killed. He's shot with an arrow right in the face by, again, one of the Pope's children, and he dies. And it says that, and, and one of the unique things that, that Miller does is at the, at the end of each of the three stories, he talks about the animals who are trying to eat. And then at the one character who shows up, uh, and it's a character in various portions of literature who's known as the Wandering Jew. And you just find, find this, this uh, trope in, again, in other novels also. But this man uh, who directed originally he, he directed gerard to the relics is also the one who he buries gerard's body and it says that the buzzards 
were denied the feast that they wanted. And that's how that first story ends. So Gerard lived in a life in simple service to God, striving to preserve the best of what the Creator had given him in the past. He dies as a faithful man. Now, now we can say, well, he's not actually doing very much. Remember, they don't live in our time with a whole lot of technology and stuff like that. This is post-nuclear fallout. Okay. The second story, Fiat Lux, Let There Be Light, finds society and culture being rebuilt after the nuclear dark ages. A scientist uh, named one of the difficult names that we'll talk about, Thon Tadio Fardentrot, a scientist and cousin of the mayor of the city-state of Texarkana, wants to visit the monastery of St. Leibowitz and study the scientific information that they have preserved. They've preserved all the information that they've discovered in a book called the Memorabilia Book. So, Tadio is a materialist of the first order. He's a scientist. He doesn't believe in God, but he wants the information that they have. He wants to use what he can find. And he only is concerned about systems, about improving technologically. He comes into conflict with the abbot. The abbot is the leader of the monastery, uh, and that's just that's the title. The abbot, Dom Paulo, who wants to use the information that they preserve for man's good, but Paulo fears what they will do with that information. So Paulo allows it, he allows Tadio to come, but he's still concerned. In the meantime, the mayor of Texarkana, who is a faithful student of Machiavelli, has gained control of the neighboring city-state of Laredo and will soon go to war to control the city-state of Denver. He has a papal representative, uh, one, one of the pope's representative, comes to the mayor and tries to get him to stop being so rambunctious, to stop taking so much, to, to, to back off, and the mayor has this man killed, the Pope's representative killed, because he wants to make sure his plans go through. Tadio realizes that his wicked cousin wants the technology to gain supremacy over the region. He knows that if he ever crosses his cousin, his life will be forfeit also. He is offered sanctuary at the monastery and protection, which he hesitatingly accepts. And part of this second story centers on these unique conversations of how the monastery has grown and how even one of the monks has developed a new way of using uh, light bulb technology through something like a treadmill. And then he is the monk is willing to give credit to that discovery to uh, Thontadio instead of taking it for himself because they want to give light they want to bring light and that's the theme of this story that the church wants to give light but it fears what man will do with that light and there's a lot of discussions between the two sides between the materialist and between or the materialist and the abbot the last story which is Fiat Voluntas Tua, Thy Will Be Done, 
takes place 600 years later and finds the Atlantic Confederacy and Asian Confederacy on the brink of nuclear war. Colonies have been established on other planets and the church is sending a rocket to one of them to preserve the knowledge of the faith and a faithful remnant. Uh, something like a long-range version of the Benedict Option. A very long-range version. In the story, the Asian Confederacy hits Texarkana with a nuclear weapon, killing millions. The monastery works to help the injured and bury the dead. One government medical worker, Don Cor excuse me, Dr. Kors, believes the best thing to do for those who are injured is to kill them. And mercy camps, mercy camps, are created for the killings. Kors is resisted by Abbot Zerki, who is the leader now of the monastery. And again, there are many discussions between Kors and Zerki about the ethics behind euthanasia. Whether it's right, when it's right, and Zerki is adamant it is not right. And Kors presents all the medical information that you, that you could ever want. The mercy camp outside has a sign that reads, Comfort. So when you walk through the gate of this camp where you will be killed, the sign says comfort. It's promising comfort to all those who are harmed. Yet, although they had never read Doug Wilson, <clears throat> the monks create their own sign and post it outside the camp that says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Now, if you've, if you've read Dante, you know that that sign is the sign that Dante has, or that he says he saw outside of the gates of hell. So those who would go into the inferno, went, they saw the sign abandoned hope. The point is clear. Death by suicide is not comfort, but it is instead the abandonment of comfort. Nevertheless, Miller does not present easy answers. He does not shrink back from the problem of evil through easy platitudes. He acknowledges through the mouth of Zerke that suffering is the price of free will and many suffer for the sins of others. The answer to suffering is only found in the resurrection and that hope will not be realized until the new creation. The novel ends with the Pope ceasing to pray for the peace of the world and praying imprecatory prayers for God's justice. A nuclear blast destroys the monastery and Father Zerke is crushed. And before he dies, he receives a consecrated communion wafer. He'd been carrying a box. The, the blast comes, he's knocked down, he's crushed under a building, he has just a little bit of life left, and the box which he cannot find is actually someone who I'm not going to describe because I couldn't do a good job, but I'll say she is one of the most bizarre female characters in all of literature, gives to Father Zerke the communion wafer. And it's the last thing he receives before his death. And this ends with also, just before that blast hit, the rocket took off to take the group to the other planet to preserve the rest of the information the information that they have on earth 
and it said that the final blast destroyed most of the life on the rest of the planet and the sharks were very hungry that season. In the midst of all this sadness and destruction, what really human things can we actually learn from, from P.D. James and Walter Miller? Despite the disorder of our time, the place for reform starts with yourself. These novels take ordinary, flawed characters and through multiple events see change happening. In Theofarnan, we see that God does not allow us to remain stagnant. His grace, in events we'd rather forego, moves us either closer to Him or the same events, to use Paul's illustration in Romans 9, harden us, as they did with Pharaoh. Suffering moves us in life. And if you are submitted to follow Christ, it will move you closer to Him. We see this also in Francis Gerard, whose simple faith was strengthened in each act of obedience, despite suffering, despite ridicule from his own brothers in the monastery, and even in his death. Grace does not come to us the way we would like for it to come. But God loves us too much to give us exactly what we want and the way we want it. Also, Miller and James teach us the role of God's people as stewards of the gospel and of the gifts God has granted us. In the children of men, the church is a shell, given over to outward trappings while possessing no inward strength. The impotence of men is symbolic for the impotence of the church. The call to stand out as God's covenant image bearers is gone, replaced by the sterile emptiness of humanistic religion. But in a canticle for Leibowitz, we see the reverse. While imperfect, the monastery at St. Leibowitz demonstrates faith working through love. Whether it is speaking for the work of Christ, preserving cultural memory, or defending those who have no voice, they provide a clear contrast to the methods and practices of the world. Nevertheless, we are finite creatures. There is only a certain amount we can do, and even then somewhat poorly. We must work, but we also must remember that the world and all in it belong to God. I cannot change Washington, D.C., or Beijing, China, or London, England. Neither can you. Francis Gerard affected a few, as did Abbot Dom Paolo, but their effect was little. We must be content to work in the place where God calls us and not concern ourselves with the trials and tribulations of places where they choose their own damnation. I'm not saying don't pray or try to be stoic. I am saying God didn't make us to heal the world. He does that. We bring His healing wherever He places us, and we trust the rest to Him. But is there something we can do when we see the world falling apart around us? C.S. Lewis has some thoughts about this, and we will hear what he has to say in the next lecture. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.